Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, my guest today is Christine Isom Verharen, who has written The Sultan's Fleet. Seafarers of the Ottoman Empire, which I hold up right here. And we talked about this before the recording. And the the Ottoman Navy is kind of a hidden gem, when you say, of the Ottoman history and Ottoman Empire. Yes, a very neglected topic, uh, given how absolutely vital the Navy is for Ottoman history, its expansion, protecting its capital, the fact that it's had so little research and writing done on it is actually kind of astonishing. Why do you think it has been neglected so so much by historians and in general? I think partly it actually begins with the Ottoman historians themselves, as in the chroniclers who are writing Ottoman history you know, more or less at the time it's occurring or shortly thereafter, they tend to focus very much more on uh, the sultans and what the sultans are doing militarily than on... I mean, to be fair, they are fascinating in their own rights, of course, but... But so, so those writers tend to focus on that and actually find for Ottoman history... You actually have to, if you want to study it more thoroughly, you actually have to go to the archival sources. And for the early Ottoman period, the archival sources are very limited. And we discussed this in our two-parter on the Ottoman Empire as well. That when and he did just the hide on the podcast, he said that when you start, start especially this is true for the later era of Ottoman history started to become less about the sultans and more about, about the empire itself. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, totally. Because the sultans are uh, after the time of uh, you know, probably the mid uh, 17th century for for sure the sultans are are actually being replaced in terms of ruling the empire to a great deal by the grand viziers and and to a degree that happens earlier as well so absolutely now let's talk about early ottoman yeah you kind of actually start before the ottomans in your book so let's talk about the navy in turkish perhaps even seljuk on naval warfare these do begin before ottomans enter anatolia so the Seljuk period, we know really very little, just uh, that there were uh, a a few rulers who did make it to the coast. Uh, the Aegean coast very briefly had uh, ruled there and were engaged in naval warfare, but we really don't know much at that period. 
So it's actually the time of the Beyliks, about the early 14th century, about the same time the Ottomans start, that we actually have the rise of a lot of Beyliks on the Aegean coast. But they're just not Ottomans, but they're other Turkish lords who are very much involved in naval matters as soon as they reach the coast and have access to the sea. And the most famous of them is Umar of Aydin, uh, whose base uh, was at Izmir. So let's talk about Umar. How did he become so powerful, such a leader in Ottoman naval? Not Maybe not, sorry, it's too early to use Ottoman right now, but how did he become such a powerful naval warrior? So he was given uh, his father who ruled uh, the Principality of Aydin gave him Izmir. And Izmir at the time had two fortresses. Uh, one was the upper fortress and then one was right on the seacoast. And he had to conquer the one on the seacoast. But as soon as he did this, he hired someone to build him a galley uh, probably the person who actually recorded his accomplishments. And with this one galley, he just goes to sea and he's involved in a naval battle early on. And he seems to, at least as near as we can tell from this epic that's actually written during the Ottoman times, he just falls in love with naval warfare. And that's all he wants to do is go to sea, fight, uh, whoever is out there, either the Byzantines or the Latins who are living in the area, and he just he just keeps fighting and gradually he's able to increase the number of ships he has until he actually is a really powerful force and is able to actually make an alliance with the Byzantine emperor Catacuzenus. Now you said that this was written the epic was written in later Ottoman times. Is this reliable source on Amur because it was written later? Uh According to the author who wrote during the reign of Mehmed II, that's mid uh, 15th century, he is actually quoting this earlier source written by this associate of Umar. And so he he claims that he's really uh, quoting him word for word. Now, I kind of doubt the word for word, but it does seem to very much reflect the the understandings of the early 14th century. So it really does seem to be pretty accurate. So yes, there's probably some exaggeration, but a lot of the events we can verify through Byzantine sources as well. Now you mentioned the Byzantines and you talked about them as well in your book where you talked about the naval policy because they were quite strong at this time as well. So what was the Byzantine naval like, naval policy like? So in the late 13th century, uh, I think the 1280s, the Byzantines were going through this difficult period in terms of finances. Mm. And so what they decided to do was to outsource their naval power. This, this would be right after they kicked out the Crusade, right? Right, exactly. Shortly thereafter. And so they're back in Constantinople. And 
but they're still not as powerful as they were before the fourth crusade. And so they're facing a lot of financial challenges. So they decide they're going to economize by outsourcing their naval power. And this ends up being a very bad decision because when they don't have their own Navy, they're at the mercy of outsiders for their naval power. And so what it means is that people who were working for the Byzantines are now going to the local Turkish rulers looking for work, as near as we can tell from the sources. And so Turks, who up to this point hadn't been any sort of a challenge to the Byzantines, really, in terms of naval power, all of a sudden, they're a major naval threat, as well as the Latins, for example, the, the Venetians particularly. And of course, they're going back to the Venetians, because they would be the Ottomans be the most fearsome enemy eventually. But there did seem we, let's go back to that lines with Emir and I'm, I'm sorry I cannot say his name right so I'm not going to try to say the Byzantine Emperor. But there did even seem if I remember correctly I could be wrong here, but there, did they have, even have a marriage proposal at some point with his daughters? Right. Right. And so Umar by this time is so powerful that Kantakuzenis who is a sometimes looked at as a usurper, he does briefly rule the Byzantine Empire. He offers one of his daughters to Umar uh, as a way of cementing the relationship. And to me, it's really quite fascinating that Umar doesn't want to take him up on this offer. And as near as we can tell, Umar just wants to be free to go to sea and fight naval battles. And he he want... likes the bachelor life, in other words. He likes the bachelor life. He doesn't want to uh, be tied down. He's willing to be Katakuzena's ally, but he doesn't want to be tied down with this this alliance that a, a marriage hmm. would kind of obligate him to fulfill. Hmm. So he, he refuses, you know, in a nice way, but he hmm. refuses this this daughter who uh according to the epic then basically kind of chases after him you know trying to get him to change her mind his mind but this of course this might sound strange to some average listeners and it's not familiar with byzantine or ottoman or turkish history from this era that there was an alliance between these two different religions but it's this goes back to Seljuk towns as well as that we do have Byzantine princesses growing up to growing, being traded to Seljuk sultans. So this wasn't really anything new in that, and as strange as it might sound for the average listener, that it, this was kind of, I wouldn't say normal perhaps, but it wasn't uncommon, right? That the Byzantine emperors would trade, especially during the Seljuk era, where they would send their daughters to marry Seljuk sultans, right? That's right. So we know of several marriages that take place between the Seljuk sultans and Byzantine princesses. And we actually have Byzantine princesses who marry other Turkish rulers in Eastern Anatolia a little later. We have uh, Byzantine princesses who marry Mongol khans. And so, yeah, this this fits in with a with a pattern of 
Byzantine princesses marrying Muslim mm-hmm. rulers in this area uh, that's it's been probably been going on for I don't know at least a hundred maybe two hundred years mm-hmm. nothing you know too exceptional right mm-hmm. yeah but where where does Emir lead on with this name where does it go because he said like you like you talked about he wanted to have this bachelor lives and where does he come into Ottoman history so he he keeps uh expanding uh the territories that he has control over he keeps expanding the number of ships he has uh and then he becomes such a threat that uh western europeans particularly the venetians arrange to have a crusade against him and the other turkish lords on the aegean and as a result of this the uh the crusaders are able to take the lower citadel the one on the coast and this really impacts umar's ability to be able to go to sea i mean he he has other coastal options but nothing that's quite as good as izmir in terms of a port and he ends up dying fighting against the crusaders trying to get back his citadel it is mere. And so, you know, how does he come into Ottoman history? Well, we have later Ottoman historians who adopt him as an ancestor. I mean, not literally as an ancestor, but they create stories that he was fighting with uh, the Ottoman Sultan Orhan's son, Suleiman, that they went on Gazas against the infidels together. This never happened, but he's... It's a good story. Yeah, it's a great story. And uh, so he's really adopted as a a precursor to Ottoman naval power, even though, you know, he's not Ottoman lineage and mm. they recognize that, but they still see him as their model of what an Ottoman mm. naval Ghazi should be. Mm. But... Uh, fighter for the faith. Hmm. So the Ottomans, they capture Bursa, which take eight years, and then they capture Adin, Adini eventually. So is it is when did they realize that we might, having a navy might be a good idea for ourselves? So really uh, what happens is the Ottomans begin to, well, the first thing they do is they take over some of their neighbor's territory. The first neighbor they take over is Karasa, which has possessions on the Sea of Marmara and also a little bit of the Aegean. And so when they take over this territory, they also start employing the naval personnel that Karasa had. And this is really the creation of an Ottoman Navy. So we see the beginnings of this during the reign of Orhan. And the most important event and i actually have a chapter about this particular location is when the ottomans take over gallipoli hmm. so they have crossed the straits the dardanelles at gallipoli and then there's an earthquake that occurs at gallipoli the walls fall down the ottomans move in and Kanta Kuzena says well actually we want gallipoli hmm. back and they're like 
no, it was an act of God. We're we're going to stay mm-hmm. at Gallipoli. So, uh, so Edirne would not have been conquered if the Ottomans hadn't first taken over Gallipoli. Mm-hmm. So Gallipoli is the first step of the Ottomans expanding into Europe. So it's absolutely essential, and this is a naval aspect, that in order to actually get across the straits and then to be able to have some control of the straits, the Ottomans need to begin having naval power that's usually based for about 100 years at Gallipoli. Mm-hmm. So how oh. you might you you mentioned Izmir before that Umur tried to capture but did not succeed in capturing Izmir. So how how is significant and how strategic important was Izmir for an Ottoman Ottoman naval base? Oh, Izmir is important. Uh, during the reign of Bayezid the first, uh, towards the end of the fourteenth century. He expands against all of the Ottomans' neighbors uh, along the Aegean coast. So he takes over uh, Sarahan, he takes over Aydin, he takes over Menteshi. These were all of his neighbors who uh, had possessions along the Aegean coast. And that's absolutely essential for the Ottomans to begin naval expansion. And Izmir becomes one of the great cities of the Ottoman Empire. It's still one of the most important cities in Turkey today because of its location on the Aegean as a great port. So it is very important for the Ottomans. But of course, more important for the Ottomans is ultimately going to be Constantinople mm. or Istanbul. So so Bayezid, of course, get captured by Tamerlane or Timur, if prefer, whatever whatever way you prefer to say him, say his name. So what what happens when, of course, you get the traditional civil war, which occurs in these times. So how does this affect the navy of the Ottoman after Bayezid's captures? So what happens is Bayezid's sons are fleeing. Well, I mean, some of them are captured by Timur. Some of them flee and really what Timur is not able to capture is Gallipoli and the Gallipoli Peninsula. Mm. So really the recreation of an Ottoman empire actually comes Mm. from the European possessions across the Straits. And that's where the princes, uh, they kind of fight over who gets possession of Gallipoli when they're making alliances with the Byzantines and the Venetians, everyone is trying to regain Gallipoli, but it's really the one possession the Ottomans refuse for the most part to negotiate away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everything else is sort of optional, but not Gallipoli because they need Gallipoli to be able to regrow the, the empire from the European possessions. Hmm. What may, I'm not, this this might be similar to the Ismir question, but what makes Gallipoli such a strategic significance? Okay, well, so we have the Turkish Straits as they are officially named, which are the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, which is at uh, Istanbul. Uh, so the Dardanelles are the southern part of the Straits, 
which lead from the Aegean into the Sea of Marmara. And they're very, you know, they're straight, so they're very narrow. And so it's a way of controlling access to Istanbul and to the Black Sea. So, I mean, you know, it's it's important. Uh, World War One, <laughs> you know, the Battle of Gallipoli. Yeah. And it's important today. I mean, when we were talking, uh, well, seeing the news about shipments of grain um, from Ukraine, I mean, in order for them to be useful for anyone, they have to go through the straits. So these straits are still incredibly significant for world trade today, um, you know, and they're narrow, so you can control them. So even with a relatively modest Navy, when the Ottomans had control of Gallipoli, they were able to impede shipping going from the Aegean mm. up to the Black Sea. Let's talk about, uh, before we go into Mehmed, I want to talk about his father real quickly, Marid of second, because he as well tries to capture Constantinople, or as you, he does, you prefer calling it Istanbul in your book, of course, but that, um, for the sake of it now, calling it Constantinople, but he fails, but he does seem to use naval ships in the bottom, but it's not to the extent that Mehmed II later used it. So how does does it work for Mo, Mo, sorry Marid's II's conquest of Constantinople? So Murad II is, you know, he has some fleet, but he also has very close relations with the Genoese as opposed to the Venetians. And so uh, the Genoese have possessions. In fact, they have possessions near Izmir uh, and they have the island of Chios. And so they're willing because the Genoese would much rather have good relations with the Turks uh, because their arch enemies are the Venetians that they're able uh, and willing to lend him naval forces to supplement the naval forces that he has. So when he is, uh, there's a crusade army sent against him in uh, the 1440s, he calls upon the Genoese to help him transport troops across, and in fact, actually near Constantinople to cross uh, at the Bosphorus and to be able to uh, bring his troops from Anatolia into the Balkans and be able to, um, it's the crusade of Varna is, is this one he's able to, Varna is in present day Romania. He's able to uh, get his army across the Straits and is able to defeat the crusaders at Varna because he's able to transport his troops very quickly with all of the naval support he gets from the Genoese. But there are some other problems there in other Murad's sorry, in Murad's sections. I'm sorry for saying his name wrong there, but there are some other troubles happening in the Empire so that it rather goes to, but would he be successful if the other problems hadn't occurred? Would he have been successful in taking Constantinople? You know, it's really possible. He had to do, he had to deal with a lot of what are called pretenders, uh, relatives who claimed that they should be the ruler instead of him. And he had to fight against them numerous times. And so 
those are really a big factor in they make alliances with his enemies. And it really keeps Murad very much having to fight all the time. He actually gets to this point where he wants to retire. He's just tired of, you know, being, you know, I say in the saddle all the time, you know, fighting his enemies. He he tries to retire. His fuck was bizarre. Yes. So he tries to retire, but his son, Mehmed II, who eventually will be the conqueror, is like only 12 years old when he tries to retire and is not really able to effectively rule the Ottoman Empire. The high officials persuade Murad II to come back so he can defeat the Crusaders. Uh, and then Murad just stays um, for another few years until his own death. But he he did. He had a lot of challenges to his rule. And it it made being able to take over Constantinople just a little bit too difficult mm. in, in the circumstances. Which, of course, brings us to the next sultan, and that would be Mehmed II. And we... I would like to say that we did make an episode on the conquest of Constantinople last year, which if you want to take a look at it with Russia Crowley in much more detail, because this time we are just going to focus on the naval part of the battle. So let's, it's rather brilliant the way he uses his naval warfare not to, think, to conquer Constantinople. He wouldn't have been able to do it without it, would he, I think you say. Yeah, and, and I think there's ample evidence to support that there's no way he would have been successful in conquering Constantinople if he had not had naval power. He uh, has ships in the harbor uh, when, you know, the, the geography is such there's an outlet off the Bosphorus called the Golden Horn uh, that the Byzantines have closed off with this huge chain so you can't get galleys through. And so this enables the Byzantines not to really have to defend that part of the city because there aren't ships that can get over there. And when Mehmet has a a minor naval setback, he's like, okay, I'm just going to do something really unheard of. I'm going to take galleys overland across uh, what is actually uh, the area that's Galata or Para today. I'm going to take them overland into the Golden Horn. That's and such a brilliant... You know, start to think, where does it come up with this? Like, where... And it does it kind of in secret overnight as well that it's right. really noticed by the Byzantines. That's the, that's the brilliant part of it, that it happens in just one night, basically. Right. And he somehow he is able to build this cause. Well, I don't know if you'd call it a causeway exactly, I guess, of uh, wooden maybe logs and that he's able to drag the ships over. And so it is remarkable that this is all able to be constructed within one night and they put the ships on it, drag them up and over. And if you've ever been to Istanbul, it's 
it's really steep. This is not flat. This is very steep. So, and uh, the leaderships are quite heavy as well. Yeah. And so to be able to transport these in one night over land, over this, is it's really remarkable. It, I think it's one of the most. It is uh, mind blowing. Clear examples of how Mehmed II is just a brilliant commander. Mm. So what does it do next with the Navy when it managed to get them over, over the Straits? So once he uh, is able to get them there, then it's shortly thereafter that he has the final assault mm. on the city. And, and if, the I might, if I might just stop there, because what Verdotten's mentioned is that the Byzantines at the time, they did have this chain in the Golden Horn that, that made it impossible to just sail into the river. So that's why, and I believe we should add this as well, that's why he had to get them over the forest and do it the way that he did it, because the chain would make it impossible for intruders to enter the river that was by Constantinople at the time. And you can actually supposedly anyway they have this chain in the museum so you can actually see it i think it's in the military museum you can actually mm. see the chain you know enormous links uh how they were able to do this so he he does have his uh you know some ships over there as well as in the main part of the bosphorus mm. and he decides to do the final assault and both the uh the assault on on the land side and uh on you know the soldiers who are on these ships are also participate in in the final assault uh that takes place on the city uh so basically the city is totally surrounded because all the sides both on land and by water have ottoman forces surrounding mm. the entire city so it's uh the naval aspect is this hugely important part and then what happens is the support that the uh the byzantines had had from the venetians they see that you know this is this assault is going to be successful and they sail away so um mm. and at this point, but, then the Ottomans go ahead and take over the city. Because Constantine the Eleventh, he did request more ships eventually from Hennis, but it just never arrived, like you said. That because uh, Mehmed basically, not totally, but basically controlled access to Constantinople because of fortresses that he had built uh that limited access to the city by sea. And so he pretty much controls access to Istanbul from the sea, which is really essential. This is one of the reasons why Ottoman rulers had never been successful before in conquering the city. So before we move on with with the history there, as something that I've been meaning to ask in the beginning, I just forgot is what kind of people... Because I think I do know the answer, but what kind of people did man manage this galleys and the navy? Who were the people on board the ships, in other words? So, 
There's a wide variety of people. We definitely, from the time of Umar, we have uh, Turks who are on the ships. Uh, sometimes the the local population who would have been mixed Turks, Greeks, uh, would have also been uh, on the ships as well. So it, it's very much a mixed group of people who are uh in the navy and we'll see that even more in the later periods when we talk about some of the later admirals uh the really cosmopolitan nature of mm. naval personnel uh it's a very wide uh variety of different individuals who are on these ships well what was the per- percentage of the galleys slaves because there there were the use of galley slaves i believe was wasn't being quite big in the Ottoman Empire as well. Eventually, but actually the galleys in the earlier periods were actually manned. The the rowers were actually peasants who were recruited uh, to to row on the ships. And actually later, there's a lot of concern when there are galley slaves rather than, than Turkish peasants because these slaves you know, if they get a chance, they're going to escape, right? And mm. so the Ottomans vastly preferred not to use galley slaves. And those are usually a smaller percentage of the rowers than the local Turkish peasants. So was that kind of the worst job you could have been on board a galley or in the Navy? Was it, was it a good job or was it like the worst job you could have? You know, this is really interesting because in a a later chapter where I look at some of the records that we have of the more common people, which are pretty uh, minimal. We don't have a lot of records of the common people, but when we have some of the Malta campaign, in fact, there are people who are promoted to the galleys from other positions. So I guess it wasn't the worst job to have. I guess there were jobs that were even less desirable uh, to be promoted uh, to actually row in the galleys from being uh, the person who would uh, beat the drums for the the galley rowers to match their oar stroke to. Mm. So, no, I it, it sounds like it would be the absolute worst thing, but apparently it was not the lowest position. Mm. So it was quite prestigious to be an admiral in the Ottoman Navy, wasn't it? Very prestigious, yes. So uh, so that's my book focuses a lot on the admirals because those are the men that we know the most about. Mm. And it was very prestigious to be the admiral. And speaking of admirals, the next, um, you dedicate quite a big part of the book to this guys is, uh, and I'm going to try to say the name right here, Kemal Reis and Piri Reis. Whom, who were they and how did they come across the Ottoman Navy? Because they do dedicate quite a large chapter and quite part of your book to them. So during the reign of Mehmed, uh, he expanded, took over areas in Anatolia that had not been Ottoman up to this point. And one of them is Karaman. It's an area around the modern city of Konya. And actually the 
the background of Kamal Reis and Piri Reis, who are uncle and nephew, is from this this other uh, area of Anatolia that had been independent of the Ottomans. But Kamal, during Mehmed's reign, becomes part of the navy, and he is apparently just very talented. And eventually he he becomes a freelancer, what we call a corsair, in that he is uh, engaging in naval warfare, which might sometimes be put in the category of piracy, but in fact is uh, has this this aspect that he's careful on who he is actually targeting, and he is uh, he actually ends up in North Africa working against the Habsburg of Spain uh, who are trying to expand in this area. And he uh, spends a lot of time there. And so his nephew, Piri Reis, has a lot of experience sailing with his uncle all around the Mediterranean, the entire Mediterranean. Eventually, Mehmed II's son, Bayezid II, recruits Kamal Reis not to be his admiral, but uh, because that is still uh, kind of a favorite who has that position, but who is Kamal Reis is really in charge of naval warfare, even though he doesn't technically have the position of admiral. He's an admiral, but not really. He's an admiral uh, in fact, but not in name. And he's very... Uh, successful in the Ottomans gaining some territory in southern Greece, uh, territories, um, for example, the city of Modan and the city of Koron. He is successful in them conquering these areas, which are really strategically very important uh, for the increase of Ottoman naval power. And so as a result of this, he... Uh, Kamal Reis is given a lot of uh, prestige. He uh, is sent on various missions by Bayezid, for example, to help the Mamluks out, uh, the rulers of Egypt, against uh, the threat they're experiencing from the Portuguese in the Red Sea. And so Kamal Reis is very active just in all sorts of areas of the Mediterranean. And this gives Piri Reis the opportunity to sail the entire Mediterranean. And so he actually becomes famous, not so much in his own time, but in later times for his cartographical works, uh, both a world map, which is one of the earliest world maps of uh, the part that exists today, that has survived, of the coast of South America. And then he writes what's uh, called a portalon, which is an account of all of the coasts of the Mediterranean with maps of every single location all the way around the entire Mediterranean Sea. Hmm. So that so, 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 uh, we mentioned them earlier uh, briefly. I wanted to avoid them until now because I feel like they would become more relevant in this era is the Venetians, because they were huge in, in naval warfare, and they were, were one of Ottoman's most fearsome enemies, as we mentioned earlier. So, what what was the ten, 
tension and the war between the Venetians and the Ottomans like? So there's <laughs> there's like war after war between the Venetians and the Ottomans. Uh, there's a long war during the reign of Mehmed II. Uh, then there's another war between the Venetians and the Ottomans during the reign of Bayezid II. This is when they conquer some territories that are today southern Greece, but they hadn't been ruled uh, by Greek rulers. They've been ruled by the Venetians as part of their uh, kind of sea empire that the Venetians had. And then uh, there's a then there's going to be uh, wars with the Venetians during the reign of Suleiman, and and in fact, my book is basically continues with wars between the Ottomans and the Venetians until the Venetians are finally defeated in the Aegean in the early 18th century. So uh, there's there's very uh, continual wars between the Ottomans and the Venetians over strategic locations in the Aegean, particularly islands and naval bases that they both want. Were there really powerful naval, naval warfare the Venetians in their heyday and Maybe not so much later on that you mentioned, but where they, where they must have been so quite powerful, I imagine. Yeah, the the Venetian navy was for, you know, for most of the 16th century, and certainly uh, from the time period of the Fourth Crusade in 1204 through most of the 16th century, was until the Ottomans are able to replace them, the most powerful navy in the Mediterranean. And so the Ottomans really didn't have to defeat the Byzantines in terms of naval warfare. It was really the Venetians that the Ottomans had to defeat. And the Venetians didn't like to go to war with the Ottomans because it interrupted trade, but they did want to maintain their key strategic locations throughout the Mediterranean, especially the Eastern Mediterranean. So let's talk about my next, and I said this to you quite a few times, I think, but my favorite pirate, Hyrodin, aka Barbarossa, who is, who he is quite badass, if I may say so. He's, you don't find out why he's my favorite pirate. So where does it come from? Okay, so there's a lot of mythology around Hyrodine. In fact, there are even French writers of the 16th century who claim that he's actually French, which is totally made up. Uh, he's actually from the island of Lesbos, which is right off the Ottoman coast. Would you His call him father, Greek or would you call him Turkish in this case? I would call him absolutely Turkish. He never identified himself as Greek. And so anyone who chooses to identify him as Greek is, in fact, not familiar with the sources that Hyrodine creates himself. So his father was originally from a Balkan area that had been conquered by Turkish raiders. 
And then he uh, is recruited to take part in the conquest of Lesbos. And he does that. And he decides to remain on Lesbos. And he does marry a Greek woman. But when Hyradine uh, eventually, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, builds a mosque in Algiers, he identifies his father as Turkish. So I don't think that Hyradine would ever have identified himself as Greek. Uh, and that's pretty anachronistic anyway, because Greek at this time probably was more an identifier as Orthodox Christian than anything that had to do with ethnicity. Hmm. So, so, yeah. Uh, to continue with Hyradine, so he grows up on Lesbos. He's one of four brothers. They are involved in Ottoman succession conflicts, back the wrong brother. And uh, as a result of this, they flee to North Africa when Selim I defeats his father, Bayezid II, and takes over the Ottoman throne. And so they go to North Africa, work for various independent North African rulers, fight against the Spanish Habsburgs, uh, help Muslims flee from Habsburg, Spain, and basically create their own little independent state at Algiers but they're always under threat from the Spanish Habsburgs who have hired uh, a Genoese admiral to be their admiral. That's uh, Doria. And so as a result of this, uh, eventually Hyradine uh, sends gifts to Selim and offers essentially to submit Algiers to Salim in exchange for some military support. Salim has just conquered uh, the Mamluks, taken over Syria and Egypt. And so he's very, very interested in taking over more of uh, the coast of North Africa. He sends all of the official like ropes of honor, banners to Hyradine, and Hyradine becomes an uh, a governor under Salim of Algiers, but he's basically ruling it pretty much independently. Yes. And he continues that uh, until well into the reign of Salim's successor, Suleiman the Magnificent, when Suleiman's pathetic admirals are not able to defend Ottoman naval bases. And so Salim sends to Algiers and says, I want you to come and become my admiral in charge of my navy and let somebody else rule Algiers and you come back to Istanbul. So it's it's pretty amazing that someone from the island of Lesbos, who would have been from a relatively modest background, is invited back by the most powerful Ottoman mm. sultan. To... He's, he's a pirate and becomes... But of working for the government initially. Well, see, uh, you would put him in the category, I think, of privateer, mm. uh, like Sir Francis Drake of England, who 
you know, works for the state, but still attacks, you know, other people's shipping. Uh, and so from the perspective of the Ottomans, he's not a pirate from the mm. perspective of the Habsburgs. He absolutely is. Mm. So I believe it was it he or was it his brother who loses his arm? I don't, I can't remember. It's his brother Oruch mm. who loses his arm. Yes, uh, fighting against the Spanish Habsburgs in North Africa. Now we discussed this in the second part of the Ottoman Sultans as well, and we mentioned Barbarossa briefly because it is because of them really that the Ottomans gained the North African territories. And then they wouldn't have done it without Barbarossa's help. They would have been just had a territory from Egypt, right? Right. Absolutely. It's because of uh, Hyradeen, Barbarossa, that they're able to take over Algiers. And then later, under one of Hyradeen's associates, they take over Libya. And eventually over, uh, they're eventually able to take over Tunisia as well. So it's, uh, would not have happened without Hyradeen and the Hyradeen's associates who he brings into Ottoman service when he comes to Ottoman service as well. Now I want to ask you a little what if question here, because it has been argued that they never did conquer Morocco. But if they had, it has been argued that they could have perhaps taken a part in colonizing the New World. Do you think they would have the naval power and the resources to do this, to take a part of the colonization of the New World, had they conquered Morocco? Well, historians hate to answer what-if questions, but... Uh-huh. Uh, uh, maybe... Uh, they would have had to have a different focus. Their focus was very much uh, to the East as well. Mm. Uh, they had major competitors in Iran, the Safavids of Iran, uh, that they were continually fighting uh, for possession of Iraq. And so it would have really had to be a reorientation of their, uh, I think their primary focus, which was, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Western Mediterranean, when they could, uh, Red Sea into the Indian Ocean a little bit uh, because of the Portuguese. But given their location in the Eastern Mediterranean, for them to be able to be effective in the Atlantic uh, would have would have been difficult, even if they had controlled Morocco. They would have had to make Morocco a very important part of the empire rather than sort of a a peripheral part mm. as algiers ends up being and we have to move on unfortunately but it you write a lot about the panto and why was this a turning point as you argue for for the ottomans and the navy so it's a turning point not because they lose ships uh it's a turning point because they lose so many men it's we're pretty clear that they probably lose 30,000 men. And that includes some of their elite uh, administrators. It uh, includes a lot of naval captains, a lot of naval personnel. 
a lot of Janissaries, a lot of uh, cavalrymen. Uh, it's just a huge number of men in terms of that period of time to lose that many trained military men. Uh, and so, you know, they rebuild their Navy the next year. They have a fleet. Uh, Sorry for interrupting you there, but at Lepanto, would you say that this is when the turn and, and, and again, they use the word turning point like you do Would this say, would you say this is when they start to go downhill with the Ottoman army? I would say losing so many men, it becomes difficult for them to maintain their naval power to the same degree that they had it before. And it's not just Lepanto. Uh, they begin to have financial difficulties. Navies are very expensive. And just as the Byzantines were always trying to economize, the Ottomans start trying to economize uh the Habsburgs are no longer fighting in the Eastern Mediterranean either. And so Lepanto is only part of the answer. It's it's much more complex than just losing the Battle of Lepanto. Right. So another one you dedicate quite a lot of your work to is Uluk Hassan Pasha. And who is he and how? Because he seems to be a pretty good admiral and knows what he's doing. So in the late, well, after the Battle of Lepanto, the Ottomans decide they're going to have a naval expert. And this happens to be an associate of Hyradeen's associate. And his name is Kalich Ali Pasha. And he becomes the admiral. And he's originally from Italy. He has an associate who is Uluch Hassan, who's originally from Venice, who actually becomes admiral as well. And he's never really a very effective admiral. Hassan isn't. And then he is replaced by another Italian, Jagalazadi Sanan Pasha, whose roots are Genoese from the island of Sicily. And so we have really about 30 years where mostly the admirals are people who actually originated outside of the Ottoman territories totally in either southern What, what course is this that they use admirals that are not Turkish but outside of the Ottoman Empire and the other, other side of the Mediterranean? Because these were individuals who had been working for the Ottomans for many years had had learning in North Africa uh, and were skilled naval personnel. With Kalic Ali, certainly his uh, loyalty is very Ottoman. Uh, you know, so it's like in the United States where, you know, you have people... You know, I would say, you know, let's an example would be World War II, where you have a lot of scientists who flee Europe mm. and, you know, they become Americans, American scientists, you know, working for the United States. So it's a very, I think, a very similar sort of instance where these are skilled men, their loyalty is to the Ottoman Empire and their uh, leading Ottoman forces because they have the 
expertise to do so. Which brings us to the Cretan War. What, how was what was the Cretan War like for the Ottomans? So we kind of have this little gap between this period where, hmm. in the 1640s, the Ottomans decide they're going to conquer Crete, and Crete is one of the few possessions that the Venetians still have in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so as opposed to the end of Cyprus, which the Ottomans had conquered just shortly before the Battle of Lepanto, the Cretan War just drags on for basically 25 years because the Ottomans really don't focus all their attention on, you know, just actually completing this conquest. And during this time period, the Venetians, even though they're not as powerful as they had been in the past, they still have a navy that's able to challenge the Ottomans in Ottoman territories, even right in the Straits uh, at Gallipoli. Uh, There are four battles that take pretty much uh, in the Dardanelles. that sometimes the Ottomans win, sometimes the Venetians win. But one of the battles is considered to be the worst defeat, the worst naval defeat that the Ottomans had after the time of Lepanto. So it's actually pretty incredible that the uh, the Venetians are able to be so effective so far from Venice against the Ottomans who are, you know, just sailing down, you know, a few short miles from Istanbul. So it really is an example of how the Ottomans, by neglecting Mm. to financially support the fleet, have really allowed it to become ineffective. And that's really a mistake if your capital city happens to be Istanbul. Mm. And and sort of rushing a little bit there, but you end your book with revival of the Ottoman Navy. So let's talk about the revival of the Ottoman Navy, like you're doing at the end of your book. So we have a period where the Ottoman Navy is really in disarray, and then they eventually end up hiring, uh, you know, recruiting, once again, a naval expert from North Africa who has been very successful in North African waters who's very committed to the Ottomans and is able to initiate a lot of reforms of the Navy. And he's, his name is Mezamorta Hussein Pasha. Uh, Mezamorta means half dead. Uh, And I find this to be a useful term as we talk about the Ottomans taking this this navy that has been sort of half dead, but is still capable of revival. And so under him and under his reforms, the Ottomans are able to fight one final battle or one final war with the Venetians, defeat the Venetians uh, from all of the Venetian territories in the Eastern Mediterranean, and finally eliminate the Venetians as a threat to Ottoman naval power. Thank you. And before before I get to the promotional part, I, I do want to ask you, and it's not really, I'm not sure if it's relevant or if you can answer this, but you see the dispute in today with Turkey and Greece over naval 
and Marita and Borders. What 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 is your take on the dispute between Greece and uh, Turkish? I'm not about to say Ottomans, but I would rather say <laughs> Turkish Turkish dispute of the maritime borders today. So it just goes to show how uh, history continues to have influence on the present. So actually, last summer uh, for the next book I'm writing about. Uh, not a superstar like Hyredine Barbarossa, but a more modest uh, naval uh, who almost becomes admiral, doesn't quite. I went to the island of Chios, which is only about three miles off the coast of Turkey, but it Chios is currently, as are all the islands uh, off the Turkish coast, are under um, Greek. Uh, control and so whatever mm. term you want to use uh, and so it was a very interesting uh, taking the ferry from Chejme on the Turkish coast to uh, the island of Chios I mean it's a very short ferry ride but you're crossing an international border and uh, you if you're arriving from Turkey that way you uh, you go to a very rundown uh, section of uh, Kios, of the town of Kios, where you're, you know, you go through passport control. And mm -hmm. and so you can see that there is very much this legacy of uh, the Greeks uh, trying to kind of dismiss uh, Turkish influence in mm -hmm. the area. And in fact, I think the locals would be very happy to have better relations between the two countries so they could have more effective mm. tourism, more effective trade. Everybody would make more money. Mm. Everybody would be happier if, uh, you know, the people in Ankara and the people in Athens didn't continue to have this uh, dispute. Because uh, this quiet hostility is still in the way I understood it with maritime borders in and in the this area. So so actually deciding uh where you know because countries are usually considered to be able to control uh a few miles into the sea mm. from their coastline. Uh but in this case, you know, it's just such a short distance that you know both turkey and greece can control can claim these same waters mm. between kios and turkey for example or between turkey and lesbos or turkey and rhodes any of those mm. islands that are just off the coast they're so so very close to the coast of turkey that there there's always going to be dispute on who controls those coastal waters Thank you so much for coming on. Do you, before you go, do you have anything to promote on the social media you want to share in the description on where do people find your book? Should they be interested in reading it after hearing this episode? Is your absolute should? Oh, they absolutely should. Yes. So it's available on Amazon. It's available from the publisher. Uh, it's, you know, so it's easy to, to purchase uh the book either you know directly from the publisher which is ibitaris but ibitaris is currently on uh, control or you know uh is now 
part of Bloomsbury uh, Publishing. And so it can be purchased through the publisher. It can be purchased on Amazon or, uh, you know, I'm sure some local bookstores. And um, I actually... You know, I might as well promote my other uh, book, Allies with the Infidel. If people are interested in Hyradine, there's a, a lot of information about Hyradine Barbarossa in that book as well. I'm writing a new book about Hussam Bey, whose son, Hussam Bey Zadeh, is an admiral during the Cretan War. So, uh, you know, look look for more naval history uh, I'm, I'm working on it uh, as fast as I can. I think the Ottoman Navy, as we discussed, very understudied. And I really feel like my book is just the beginning. So hopefully many more scholars will uh, contribute to understanding Ottoman naval history. And we'll have many more books for people to read on this fascinating subject. I hope so, too. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. My name is Alan. This has been with that age as well. If you are, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Please, if you are on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review of a podcast if you liked this episode and check out some more episodes. You're definitely going to find something you like. Please like, share and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. 